Hello, and welcome back to the Resonance Test. I'm your host, Kenji Ross from EPAM Continuum, and today I want to ask you a question. What do you think Sting's mental state was like during the height of the police's fame in the early 1980s? Nope, I'm sorry, that was the wrong question. We'll get to that in the interview. Let me start again. What single issue negatively influences health, wealth, employee retention, capitalism, social media, and participatory democracy? Loneliness. Today's guest, British economist and author Narina Hertz, recently published a book called The Lonely Century, How to Restore Human Connection in a World That's Pulling Apart. And she's an expert on loneliness. Not in being lonely, per se. She seems to have a lot of friends. But in her conversation with our producer, Ken Gordon, she takes a fascinating, holistic approach to the effects of loneliness in our society, a problem that already existed pre-COVID. Dare I say, it's a human-centered approach to economics. So, of course, we love talking with her. When you hear her reject antiquated, rationalist economic theories and talk instead about learning from flesh-and-blood-breathing humans... She's speaking our language, and maybe yours. Get ready for a wide-ranging, occasionally existential episode. Maybe listen to this one with a friend. Norena, welcome to the Resonance Test. We're extremely glad to have you here today and excited to talk with you uh, about The Lonely Century, your new terrific book. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you, Kim, for inviting me on. Yeah, so... One of the things I really like about The Lonely Century is that you provide some some very specific and unique perspectives on what loneliness is. Uh, you talk, for instance, about loneliness as an evolutionary feature, and then you cite Professor Anton Emanuel, who compares uh, the stress response of loneliness to putting a car in first gear. Can we, can we take that metaphor and put it on the road and drive it around a bit? Can you talk about <laughs> the idea of loneliness as being in first gear? Yes. So when we think about loneliness, we we do often think correctly that loneliness is bad for our mental health, and it indeed is. Loneliness um, is linked with higher rates of anxiety, higher rates of depression, and sadly, higher rates of suicide as well. But we think less about the toll that loneliness takes on our physical health, and yet this is immense and intense. Um, It's essentially because we are creatures of togetherness, hardwired to um, be together. And that being so, our bodies have evolved a kind of alert alarm system, which essentially uh, tells us when we're lonely, signals to us very clearly when we're feeling lonely, um, this is an undesirable state. So when we're lonely, our blood pressure goes up. Our, our heart rate goes up, our levels of cortisol, our stress levels in our body go up. All of these essentially signaling to our body, um, stop being lonely, go and find people to hunt and gather with, go and find your tribe. Um, and it's it's quite a good design feature in many ways because it's incentivizing us to stop feeling lonely. Yet, in the same way that when we put a car into first gear, that is a good thing initially. You don't want to be driving your car in first gear for a protracted period or even worse for repeated journeys. Yet that's what we're doing in contemporary life. We're remaining in this state of loneliness 
for days or weeks or months or even years. And this has very, very negative impacts on our health. Um, in fact, loneliness is associated with a 29% higher risk of heart disease, a 32% higher risk of having a stroke. And if we're lonely, we're 30% more likely to die prematurely than if we're not. Yeah, like you say in the book, a lonely body is not a healthy one. And mm-hmm. I was wondering why you were compiling all these horrible statistics. Did How did it make you feel about your own health as you were reading all this? Did, did you start to sort of feel panicked, uh, making sure that <laughs> you weren't too lonely to be healthy? I mean, this whole writing, the experience of writing this book has made me realize the toll that loneliness is taking, um, not only on our health, of course, um, you know, also on our wealth, mm-hmm. lonely um Lonely workers are less productive, less motivated, less efficient, le- more likely to quit a company than workers who are not. But also the toll that loneliness is taking on our democracy. And that was something I discovered in my research and then looked at in great length, you know, the link between loneliness and the rise of right-wing populism mm. across the globe is is a real one. So, um, you know, as an economist and um, I in a way, stumbled across this issue because so many of my students were coming to me and confiding in me how lonely they were. And this was a new phenomenon, not something I'd seen in previous years. Uh, And that was, so I kind of, in a way, stumbled across this whole subject and started looking at it in more depth, but um, came to realize, and through my research and through the people I interviewed and and the stories I tell, really came to realize that it is, a very, very serious um, crisis, even before the pandemic struck. And I think that's, you know, with, we are more conscious of loneliness today, what with around 50% of Americans currently feeling lonely. But even before the pandemic, one in five Americans said that they were lonely always or often. Um, one in five millennials said that they didn't have a single friend at all. So loneliness already was a very significant crisis. And it's one that's got considerably worse during the pandemic and something that needs to be on all of our radar. I agree. And uh, I I think your book here does a very, uh, sets up a very strong picture of how lonely we all are. And, And I think one of the things I was really struck by in your book was how personal it is. It is really by far the most personal work by an economist I've ever read. (laughs) I mean, you begin, and to be fair to to tell our listeners, you begin the book with an image of how you and your husband are curled up asleep in bed. And then you talk about your father's words worthy in texts in the early part of the pandemic. And you even share details about your improv group. So I'm curious, can you talk about why you included such personal details in in such a sweeping uh, sort of holistic depiction of... (laughs) the lonely uh, society? Uh, well, I, I am an economist. My work's always kind of been at the intersection of where economics meets society, meets politics, meets psychology. So for me, um, the human is not the abstract homo economicus rational man mm-hmm. of economic theory, but is a flesh and blood breathing human. So um, so my my research has always been very bottom up and always kind of what I've worked from 
real stories, real people, real testimonies, real case studies. But with this book, you know, loneliness, of course, it's an emotional state and to not weave into it um, my own stories and my own experiences and my own research that I undertook when I was taking this book, um, even even things like when I rented Britney, um, I rented a friend in New York for a few hours, having learned that one could rent a friend. I wanted to put in kind of my real life experiences and direct observations of um, of this lonely society and what it meant. Um, so it was a, so it was a kind of it was a, and I wanted and I felt that it would make that it would make and I think it succeeded in doing so the book a much richer read so it is a really big ideas book but it's also full of great stories and anecdotes and warmth and humor at times as well yeah I, I you mentioned Brittany I was wondering because I've I've listened to a couple of interviews with, about this book and everybody <laughs> gloms onto that story about Brittany is there anything that you notice that people have missed? in the conversations you've had around the book that you really felt like were, were uh, essential, but it just didn't, for whatever reason, catch um, the attention of your interlocutors? Uh, well, um, it, oh, I mean, the book's, the book's so kind of far-reaching and we always have such limited time yeah. to, um, so, so, um, so on um, podcasts and interviews, you know, people are only ever getting a snapshot of the book and this, it's such a rich book with so much in it. I mean, there's a whole area that um, I'm, that I think is particularly interesting now looking forward post pandemic, which is around what I call the loneliness economy. Mm. And um, this is, this is something that I saw uh, rising even before the pandemic struck. And by the loneliness economy, I mean goods and services designed to alleviate loneliness, deliver connection, or at best deliver community. So even before the pandemic, we saw um, social robots on the market. Uh, we saw uh, ways for people to come together, commercial initiatives, whether we're talking co-working spaces like WeWork or um music festivals or escape rooms gaining in popularity. Yeah. But of, of course, the pandemic put the physical face-to-face -face group um, experiences on hold. But what I'm really fascinated about is post-pandemic, the loneliness economy and the shape it's going to take. Because I really feel that having come out of months and months starved of human connection in the same way that after a period of fasting, we're more hungry. After this period of social recession, our need and desire and demand for shared in-person experiences with others is um, going to really rise. And um, the and so my ch my chapters on the loneliness economy and the potential it has and how to engender like really authentic communities mm -hmm. i think really are very appropriate have some really kind of interesting lessons and clues for how we redesign the workplace um commercial experiences and also innovate new products to meet the huge um, loneliness 
the huge numbers of lonely people, but also the huge craving for connection people have. Oh, that's so important. Um, and and it, it brings up uh, something I want to talk to you about, which is that you cite uh, Hannah Arendt, who, mm. who writes that through surrendering their individual selves to ideology, the lonely discover their purpose and self-respect. And it, it reminded me a bit of Bob Dylan's great line. He says, riflemen stalk in the sick and the lame. Preacher man seeks the same. He'll get there first is uncertain. In that, it seems like all the lonely people out there who are being targeted, as they say in the vernacular, uh, by by the as much by politicians as they are for players in the loneliness economy. And I was wondering if you've thought about how we can help leaders and organizations make a kind of shift of mind from seeing loneliness as an opportunity to be exploited uh, to maybe seeing it as a problem to solve or a disease to be treated. Because I mm. think that it really is about um, seeing loneliness. If you're going to see it as a chance to do something, you want to see it as an opportunity to help rather than something to be taken advantage of, I think. Yes. Um, yes. Although, of course, if it's a win-win, if there's a commercial imperative to do so, and at the same time you're helping people in a way, that's the um, that's the golden um, <laughs> goose, the holy grail, yeah. so to speak. And you know, and I think when it comes to the loneliness economy, it is actually one of those win-wins. If you can sell people authentic communities that speak to their needs to connect with others. Um, you're going to have a significant customer base um, and you're going to deliver something good for others. The The importance is, of course, that it be authentic and that this isn't and that we don't see a new form of greenwashing, we washing yeah. appear. Yeah. Um, but, but I think um, in the workplace as well, I think important is that employers recognize that loneliness um, – it's bad for business. Lonely workers are less motivated, less um, efficient, more likely to quit than workers who aren't. So there's actually a business case for tackling it as well. And you know, in my book, I have lots of ideas about what businesses can do, for example, to help their employees feel less lonely. Um, and the motivation for doing it, you know, is actually a commercial one. So you have a competitive advantage if your staff feel more connected to each other. So, um, so I think this, it's about recognizing that, uh, we need to move away from the more transactional form of mm -hmm. capitalism that has dominated over the past 20 years to uh, last 40 years to a more, um, relational form of capitalism in which our relationships with others are valued and nurtured and strengthened in the knowledge that that pays off. It pays off um, in the workplace. It pays off in societal terms, in terms of having a less fragmented, less fractured, less polarized society as well, of course. Uh, Martin Buber would agree. Actually, speaking of Martin Buber, Jonathan Sachs came to mind when I was reading your book. Mm. And he said, he was talking about, uh, in one essay, he talks about uh, the sort of consolation to be found in loneliness. And he says, mm. when we feel alone, we are not alone uh, because the great heroes of the human spirit felt this way at times. And he mentions Moses and David, Elijah and Jonah and Rav Cook and, and Soloveitchik. And then he says it was precisely their loneliness that allowed them to develop a deeper relationship with God. And we don't talk too much about the positive aspects of loneliness, generally speaking. Can, can we talk about that at all? Do you, how do you, uh, yes. Although I first should strike and um, I must say that... Um, 
the late Jonathan Sachs was a real um, inspiration of mine, a mentor, and he actually married me. Um, so, um, yeah. So, um, so it was, so it's lovely that you mentioned him and, um, he was a real champion of my work. But actually, um, in the Torah, in the Bible, and the first, um, time that God says to man, um, talks about something not being good is when he says it is not good to be alone. So um, we must remember that as well. Um, But I I make a distinction, and I think that's what um, Jonathan Sachs is speaking to here. There is a distinction between solitude, Mm -hmm. which is an active um, choice of being on your own. I'm somebody who really likes spending time on my own for sure. That's as a writer and as a thinker, of course, I like being on my own. I like spending time on my own, but even, you know, sometimes I like just watching movies on my own, reading novels on my own. So, um, that's an active choice, solitude, but we need to make a distinction between that and loneliness, which is really a state of craving, um, connection and not and feeling that you don't have it, whether it's the connection of your friends or family, but also I um, argue more broadly, you know, a feeling of feeling a feeling of being disconnected from your government, from your employer, a feeling of being unseen and unheard, not only by those closest to you, but also by your um, state and um, your fellow citizens and by your workplace. So loneliness is an existential state of yearning a connection that you don't feel you have, an existential state of um, wanting to be seen and heard and feeling that you don't have that, which is distinct to choosing moments to be on your own, which can be very rewarding for sure. For sure. Absolutely. Um, It actually reminds me a little bit of, I can't tell you the number of times when I was reading your book and I would pick up in the, the, the chorus from the great um, police song, So Lonely, would pop into my head. And I remember (laughs) thinking about Sting and he actually had said in an interview from the outside, it might look a bit strange being surrounded by all this attention and yet experiencing the worst lonely feeling, but I do. Mm. And then suddenly the attention is withdrawn a half hour later and you're so isolated, which of course was him talking, uh, you know, as a rock star. But the experience of the waxing and waning of attention has, at this point in our culture, been thoroughly democratized by social media. And you talk about social quite a bit in your book. Uh, yes, and I, I think that's a really apt parallel. Actually, as he was giving me um, the sting quote, I was thinking, "Oh, this is just like this social yeah, media." That's right. <laughs> and I and I was yeah. and I have a question for you, which is that if, if you could, would you completely step away from social media without any negative effects? If you could do it, and it wouldn't uh, do it, would you? Yeah, I mean, when I when I was writing, I I mean, I wasn't on social media at all. I'm only back on social media because I'm promoting a book, and um, <laughs> and it's part and parcel of what's expected of you now as a writer, right. as an author by your yeah. publishers. So, yeah. um, so, um, but uh, I feel the addiction now that I'm back. Um, back there. And, you know, this is having written a book on, um, where I have a whole chapter on the role that social media plays in today's loneliness crisis, a significant role. So having really dug into the research, interviewed um, 
you know, teenagers who were being affected, interviewed other people. So I know it's bad for us. And yet the addiction is all too real. And I feel myself reaching to my phone to check if somebody's retweeted a tweet or liked it, looking for that affirmation, looking for that dopamine hit. Because of course, you know, these um, are very sophisticated um, platforms which are designed explicitly to keep us addicted and right. to make sure that we keep coming back and keep coming back. And the um, worry is, of course, you know, to the parallel with the Sting song is um, with the Sting quote is 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 especially worrying when you think about young people who are developing a sense of self on the basis of how many likes they're getting and how many shares and how many retweets, um, where this commoditized self is inexorably linked to the self, to their evolving self. And that mm-hmm. ha- that has to be a very negative, a very negative thing with, with clear um, ramifications for sure. And, and now to mention young people, and uh, you mentioned your your students previously mm-hmm. in their in their loneliness, and I think my kids and pretty much everyone under the age of thirty seems to walk around all the time wearing headphones. And <laughs> I, I was wondering whether that sort of isolated uh, me, uh, media consumption, TV and movies, music, and everything else, it had implications on sort of people's levels of loneliness. Do you find that headphones all the time culture is contributing to our loneliness quotient and part of the reason why your students are are perhaps having a, a tough time? Yeah, I think these are all various ways in which we have, um, especially in young people especially, are not connecting with others um, fully, not being fully present with those around them. And we're seeing it have a marked impact. I mean, with my students, what I was struck by, it wasn't just that they were coming to me and saying that they were lonely and very lonely, which was shocking, but it was also when I was setting them group assignments, I was realizing that they were finding it, many were finding it increasingly hard to really communicate even face-to-face. And I raised it with a colleague, um, somebody who runs one of the US's most prestigious universities. And he said to me, we're seeing exactly the same thing here. Mm -hmm. In fact, here it's so bad, we're having to run how to read a face in real life classes for our incoming students because so many are arriving, really lacking the most basic skills in reading people in a room. And... um, yeah, which is mm-hmm. which is quite uh, quite astounding. So you know whether it's the phones, whether it's the fact that people are cocooning, we're cocooning ourselves um, in our own digital privacy bubbles. Um, all of these are uh, antithetical to us being and feeling truly connected with others, and that and this matters not only at an individual level but also at a societal level, because it's through our face-to-face interactions with others. It's through um, being around others and doing things in person with others that we practice the skills that in many ways Mm -hmm. underpin inclusive democracy, reciprocity, civility, listening to others, um, taking others' interests into account. The less we do that, the less practiced as a society we are at doing that. And that has political ramifications as well as um societal ones yeah you you're a you're a board member of the warner music group 
Yes. And I, I have to imagine that you must feel the need to sort of get some of this uh, learning into that group and sort of helping to contribute to build a less lonely and kinder culture for, for, for their business. Have you done so? And if not, what would you suggest? Well, I um, work with companies kind of all over the world and have done um, for a number of years on uh, on a number of kind of strategic issues. And right now, you know, with many, um, many big global uh, listed companies are really asking themselves, how do we ensure that our um, employees um feel more connected to each other how especially of course given all these months of remote working um how do we um help our employees feel um less disconnected and how do we connect as well um more broadly more strongly more broadly with our broader stakeholders our suppliers our customers etc because i think you know many companies are starting to realize that they need to move from what we might think of as transactional capitalism to a more relational form of capitalism. Um, really as a matter of um, business imperative um, as well and and trying to figure out, well, how do we do that? What's the journey we need to go on? So, um, so with a number of companies, I'm helping them um, go on this journey. Cool. Uh, I, I had a question about the many characters you mentioned, the many interviews you did in your book, people like Brittany or Carl, the executive mm. who pays to be cuddled. Mm. Um, because we're also connected now, right? And they all, uh, everybody has a social media presence. Do you still f- hear from your interview subjects after you've interviewed them and published them? Does the, does the relationship continue? Um, the situations ever. I mean, you have so many people, and I'm sure you've done so mm-hmm. many Skype interviews or whatever. Mm-hmm. That in this world, I can imagine the relationship with some of them must continue somehow. Um, some of them have reached out and stayed in touch since the books come out, and um, and and some haven't. Uh, I'm definitely around for them. Yeah, no, I wouldn't imagine <laughs> they all would. I just, I just imagine they're weird. Uh, there must be a change <laughs> in the relationship between the researcher and the research subject at this stage. You've written so many books now uh, that I thought I was curious to see if there has actually been, or that's just not the case, I mean, really. Yeah, I mean, kind of not, not, um, not particularly, actually. Um, yeah, not particularly. I'd say you know, pretty similar to previous books when I've written about people and characters. And um, and obviously I change names when it's a sensitive um, situation. So, you know, Carl, who pays to be cuddled, isn't really Carl. Right. Um, he has a different name. But, yes, um, some of them do stay in touch. And it's um, people really shared their stories and their truths with me and their circumstances and their situations and and also allowed me to enter weird worlds from the worlds of renting friends to meeting Flippy, the um, burger flipping robot chef who, you know, soon will, who was already a number of people's co-workers to, um, to even experiencing what it was like to be interviewed 
by artificial by an artificial intelligent machine mm. for a job rather than a person. So, um, yeah. So, so this book really gave me an opportunity to experience things myself as well as speak to a whole host of interesting people. Yeah, no, and, and we as readers obviously reap the benefit of that. So thank you. I appreciate that. And finally, one last thing. You end the book with a really rousing call to, to, to individuals, and businesses, and governments to take up the fight against loneliness. And in your work, you've interviewed many, many individuals, worked with many businesses, and, and consulted with many government people. The question yeah. I have for you is how likely is it that all three groups will actually take up the call? Um, do you see the full 21st century as it expands, which you've really only just started? Is it doomed to be lonely? Will they listen to you? Will they make change? Is there a, a will to to uh, to listen to the, your, your uh, advice, do you think? I think the pandemic has actually made change uh, very likely uh, in the same way that in the wake of the Great Depression, President Roosevelt initiated the New Deal, or in the wake of World War II in the United Kingdom, we initiated the National Health Service, this period of collective struggle that we've all undergone together, this period of collective mourning and collective pain, I think will yield uh, a greater demand and desire for some uh, for greater unity and a greater sense of coming together and and that governments will be more incentivized to walk this path and i think and and especially given the fact that there is you know in economic terms a significant cost associated with the status quo a health cost a cost on healthcare budgets um a cost on our economies and a cost on our political stability even as well so so um so i'm actually hopeful but of course hope isn't a lottery ticket that we sit on the sofa and clutch hope right. is a call for action and um and my book's full of ideas that governments can do full of ideas that businesses can do but this is also about us as individuals uh making significant changes you know some of them can be really small like trying hard as it is to use our um to put our phones aside more often and be really present with those who are physically in front of us whether it's our partner or our um colleagues or our friends it's about um nurturing our own local communities more um really committing to helping our local shops and our local cafes and our local yoga studios all of whom are on their knees given the triple whammy of the lockdown the um pan- lockdowns pandemics and uh, and um shift to e-commerce that they're having to contend with so in the knowledge that we need our local communities to thrive because they anchor and nurture us and help us feel more connected to each other but it's also it's also about us recasting how we see ourselves you know realizing that we need to see ourselves more as givers rather than takers as collaborators rather than competitors recognizing that there are at times trade-offs we might have to make between what's in our immediate self-interest and what's in the collective interest between even at times freedom and co- and fraternity, convenience and community. But it's also about in very practical terms right now, 
thinking about whether there's anyone in our own network who might be feeling lonely. And if there is, actively reaching out to them, picking up the phone to them, um, sending them a text, if we can, meeting up with them in a socially distanced way, because just showing someone that we're thinking of them, that we care, that they are visible to us, can make a huge difference to how they feel. That is beautiful. Thank you, Norena. Thank you for that answer. And thank you for your time. I really enjoyed um, speaking with you. This is this has been great. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Kim, for having me on. EPAM Continuum integrates business, experience, and technology consulting focused on accelerating breakthrough ideas into meaningful impact. At EPAM Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real. Because from our perspective, ideas aren't really innovative until they exist. Thanks are due to our guest, Narina Hertz, for connecting with us today. She was interviewed by our producer, Ken Gordon. Kip Palalis is our sound engineer. And I'm your host, Kenji Ross. Until the next one, thank you. Thank you.